Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Entangling Vines, Case 45, At All Times Be One. In the Surangama Sutra, it is written, Asleep or awake, at all times be one. This morning was the most wonderful fog. You could barely see the trees. And sometimes it's also wonderful to sit in such a foggy mind. Don't discriminate against that. There is this very old saying that pertains to Zen practice in general. Because so many people appear in front of Zen teachers, in front of Shingyoroshi, in front of myself, Hokuto Sensei, and so many teachers and say, my practice is lacking, I want to deepen my practice. It's too shallow, it's too this, it's too that. And traditionally there's this expression that even if you walk through the mist long enough, you will get soaked so thoroughly all the way through all your garments to your skin and you will be wet. So, there is no need for any kind of measurement. It's called practice because we just do it. Over and over, No, fresh and fresh, every moment fresh. It was wonderful to see yesterday Shingyoroshi's Teisho here and how happy she was. There was no named person in that koan. (laughs) This one here goes even so far. There is no person in here. (laughs) Uh, And what is said in here is so straightforward that I could just say, well, in the Surangama Sutra it is written, Asleep or awake, at all times be one. Hi. (laughs) But unfortunately, that doesn't uh, gel with the schedule that requires me to fill the time between now and the yoga class. (laughs) So I, I had to really think very hard, what should I say? But I have come up with something that actually really emerged from this just by looking at it. And it's a, it's a teaching to be learned for all of us. Even words are somewhat insentient things at times, especially if they make no sense uh, just by being those hollow shells or containers that have no life. But if we make it our business to listen carefully enough and to get our ear and our heart closer and closer. Ah, it's saying something. So another sermon from insentient ink on the paper emerged. And if you listen carefully enough, you will be able to hear the sermons with your eyes and to see them with your ears. And that's where it then clicked, okay. What is it that I have to talk about here? Let's find out. So this portion is from the Surangama Sutra. We have been chanting 
the Ryogon Shu, which is the magic formula that is contained within that scripture. Now, please don't be disappointed, but this sutra was published in 730 of the Common Era. And from the beginning, it was regarded to be a cripple, not authentic. Apocryphal. Anybody help me? Apocryphal. Apocryphal. Terrible word. <laughs> Not authentic. Made up. So what we've been chanting there is most likely made up. That means somebody had the intention to break our tongues with those words and our eyes. And then to make it even harder, it is then written out in Romaji, in the Roman alphabet, where you can't distinguish which syllable ends where. Does this you go with the previous syllable, or is it the syllable of its own? If you think that way, by the time you figure that one out, it's two pages ahead. <laughs> and maybe that was the intention of it. But the good thing to know about the sutra is that Whatever is taught in the sutra is a collection of teachings that come from other sutras. So it's not really just made up. It's more like an anthology or a collection of thoughts of the Yogacara school and, and various aspects of Buddhist teaching. So it's not that bad. So here it says... It's the Buddha and Ananda. So this portion here contains the characters which we have in this koan. And it's about teaching Ananda not to be attached to, and there are all different kinds of chapters in there, anything from bodily desires, mental desires, this and that. And this one here is, you can find out from this portion. Ananda, when a person who has practiced samadhi reaches the end of accumulating insight, the cognitive process that causes dreams will disappear from their mind. For such a person, there will be no distinction between sleep and being awake. Their consciousness will be as clear and as luminous as the clear sky. Images of ugly objects will no longer appear as objects of perception. All phenomena of the world, mountains, rivers, everything, will be a mere reflection that appears briefly on a clear mirror leaving no traces or residue. Receiving and mirroring, nothing else. That person has exhausted their karmic imprints. Only the pure essence of mind remains. That's beautiful. It describes the function of the mind as a mirror that can be cleared so that it can reflect without traces, without imprints on it. Some mirrors are curved and not really plain. And images that are mirrored on such mirrors, they stretch or they get distorted. So it's not just the clarity of the mirror, but also the calmness that comes with it. And it is compared to the beautiful uh, clear sky without clouds that we don't have today. However, the demonstration how to arrive at that clear sky is manifest in front of us outside. The fog is needed. 
The rain is needed. The wind is needed. All of it. And in our human nature, how does it come out, the rain, sometimes? Nostrils, tear ducts, saliva, and I'll stop there, okay? <laughs> but that's how it comes out. Well, that means I really should talk about our corporal being, our being bodies, ourselves being here in this world where this emptiness can be hard enough for people to bump into, carrying flowers or not, and vases. So we have a body. And have you ever wondered about it? Isn't it kind of ironic that in this Zen practice that we are doing here, there is so much focus in the teaching on mind. A lot is written about mind. What kind of minds can you think of? Buddha mind. True mind original mind. Again and again, everywhere, we are reminded that with and without words, everything is this very mind. What is Buddha? Mind is Buddha. Faith in mind. Well, where is the body? What we are experiencing in this session is that it is meaningless to have a practice about mind without having a practice with the body. And that's kind of ironic because there's not so much written about uh, the bodily practices. Yes, Hakuin wrote a couple of things about it, especially inspired by his Zen sickness that was cured by this legendary figure in, in the cave. Uh, but generally, there's not much out there regarding our bodies. This moment arises from mind. This moment itself is mind. This is mind with a capital M. But sometimes, if you look very carefully, you also see that the Masters write about mind as the body of reality. Even the Buddha himself pointed to this body of reality in terms of the physical body when he said this. This is an old, an old translation. Verily, I declare unto you that within this very body, mortal though it be, and only a fathom high, but conscious and endowed with mind, within this very body is the rising of the world and the waxing thereof and the waning thereof and the way that leads to the passing away thereof. Have you considered that this body sitting here on the tatami, on a cushion, on a chair, that this is the body of reality? We chant it often enough, Hakuin Zenji, in the Zazen Wasan. This very body is the body of the Buddha. So what about it? When you recall what was said here to Ananda by the World Honored One, 
about sleeping and being awake, let me ask you, is it that the mind sleeps? Or is it that the body sleeps? Or are there a combination that neither body nor mind are sleeping? Or just one and one not? Do you know? When did you watch yourself sleep the last time? Well, there's only one person here who can do that. And that's Myogen, because he will record it. <laughs> and then he will look at it. <laughs> but that is, again, secondhand. It's very interesting to consider that. This week, now, let me ask it this way. Have you experienced your mind being wide awake and your body dropping over? And vice versa. Your body sitting there and your mind going... <laughs> when will this talk be over? All kinds of combinations. Sometimes both are completely tired. And tiredness is something that we do experience here, not wantonly. It is designed to wear out exactly that idea that it is not good to be tired. And one of the interpretations of this koan actually goes into that direction, saying uh, that, that this is about forgetting about being tired. Let's see. What is tiredness? Is it lack of energy or is it an energy of its own? Have you ever explored the different flavors of tiredness? Compared to the flavor of Rinzai Zen in which I was trained, here we are allowed to rest our hands. Joshu Roshi did not allow that. You had to sit out with the full mudra holding it like this not resting it anywhere. It builds up good musculature in your back, I can tell you that. It lasts for a lifetime. But you find yourself sitting there with all the might of your mind in the morning. And you are awake, but your hands just go like that. <laughs> and you know what you can do about it? Absolutely nothing. You can pull them up again. It's a, such a humbling experience of not even being able to control what we call my body. My body. Beyond the control, beyond the need for control at times. We don't tell our heart, come on, beat, beat. That would be quite laborious, right? It keeps beating. We don't tell our intestines to digest. They just do it. So that is a very important teaching that we have to look at. So, one thing that I wanted to point out that Joshu Roshi always pointed out is when you read about Zen nowadays and in English, and actually, according to him, it happened after World War II, the words Satori and Kensho were suddenly used much, much more than the word that was used before for uh, the awakening and the embodiment of it. And it is called Taitoku, Taitoku Suru. 
It's a common word in the Japanese language, taitokusuru, you know, where tai is, of course, the body, substance, reality, and toku is gain, get, find, acquire, to get it through the body. This practice has to be gotten through the body. And sitting, of course, is one of those ways of getting it through our physicality. So these four characters, go, mi, ko, itsu, literally, from the koan mean when sleep and being awake become one. The time of awakeness and sleep are the same. Or other interpretation, using day and night in the same manner. Letting go of the preference towards sleeping versus being awake. And it's not just the physical sleeping. How much easier is it to anesthetize ourselves with that what we like and put something to sleep that is telling us, hey, wake up, wake up. Very important. In addition to that, we have to also understand that we grew up in the Western world. And the Western world, children grow up differently than in other cultures. I imagine this scene here where the grown-up says to, to one of the kids, come on, please sit here. Most kids go, why? Why? Isn't that the same with people who come to Zen practice? Sit down. Why? Or it comes out in the question that we bring, the questions that we bring to Doksan. What's the point of this? Why should I be doing this? It's quite different. Other cultures begin with assuming the posture and trusting in learning from it. When you learn any of the martial arts or any of the arts of making something, even if it is basket weaving, you don't learn it by, a, by asking why. Life cannot be learned just by asking why alone. Why is it that we ask and why? See, I'm falling into my own trap here. <laughs> why do you think it is that way? What, what does it, exp is, is it an expression of, of an underlying uh, lack of something or of an underlying distrust? There is distrust in, in certain cultures that is very, very well founded. If you have been persecuted for many, many generations, of course, it is hard to trust. Are we always afraid to be harmed or out of control? That could also be. That's why in our tradition here, one of the beginning practices that we always engage in is we have to start developing this deep trust in what we are doing. Deep trust or great faith, we could say. That's why, how do we start our morning service? Ah, you are the light. Atta sadhana. 
Take yourself as a refuge. Trust yourself. Dhamma sarana. Trust the Dharma. And the warning. Ananna sarana. Don't trust anything that appears to you as something separate from Dharma or yourself. A very, very important practice. And Dhamma Sarana, Dhamma is the law of nature, the law of the Buddha, the, the axiomatic, natural happening of whatever is just happening. Your breath is the manifestation of that law. The breath teaches us how far we can exhale until there is no more exhalation possible. And naturally, our bodies will just take this tiny, tiny touch point of zero and inhale. And that comes to its limit. Do you think you can develop trust in your breath? Zazen teaches us that. It even finds it, its way into modern psychology and treatment of mostly human beings who have suffered trauma. There is this one uh, therapist from Harvard Medical School, Bessel van der Kolk is his name, who wrote a book that was revolutionary at the time under the title, The Body Keeps the Score. How could it be any other way? We sit here, we have memory. Where is that memory? It is in our bodies. Why would it just be conscious memory? Unconscious memory or forgotten memory or imprints from having had these traumatic experiences resides within all of us. Unless you were born by C-section, birth coming out of our mother's womb is not anything short of being traumatic. So there is something in our sitting practice that works with our body and also these stored kind of traumatic imprints. The great revelation that he came to basically is to make people understand that this is uh, the nervous vagus, which is one of the main nerves that comes from your brain. 80% of the fibers of that nerve are efferent. That means they prov uh, afferent. They bring information into the brain. And only 20% deliver information to your body, to your guts. All these functions that work without our willful interaction. But that means when we are sitting here from a scientific medical point of view, we are also training our body, the old brain that is not conscious to learn and to listen. It is okay. It is okay. It is okay. That is also part of cleaning and making that mirror plain. There is no shame in any of it. It is how we human beings function. And I know sometimes we think, okay, I experienced this traumatic experience because I was told, or oh, I was bad, or this or that. We learn to forget that in our Zen practice, through the sitting, with our breath, 
through the paying attention to what our body tells us, but also very importantly, through telling through our body, our old brain, it is okay. There are so many aspects to it. I'm very lucky that Shuko-san is a uh, mental health person because whenever it comes to go and partake uh, education to keep the licensure going, I get to see these wonderful seminars and, and, and learn about the thing. It's, it's very interesting. And more and more of these dramatic uh, oriented therapies go into that realm that starts to border onto the teachings of the Buddha very, very closely, very closely. You can explain it saying, yeah, it's the old brain, but we can also say, well, these are karmic imprints. That's one way of looking at one type of karmic imprint. And there are so many things that are described in these more modern approaches of various people that come very close to doing koan practice with yourself or looking at the various voices that are in yourself, learning yourself transform and all of that. Not, not far away from what Shakyamuni talk, talked about. So Taitokusuru, Taitokusuru, in Zazen, in the sitting, but not just in the sitting, in everything we do here. Now, of course, I have exaggerated a little bit before saying that there is nothing about the body in, or in the Zen teachings. That, that is certainly an ex exaggeration, but we don't see it as clearly as when we see mind because we want to have this mind and with this body, with the body, you know what we are? We're stuck with it, yeah? Stuck, we're stuck with it. Oh, I wish it, I were taller. I wish I were younger. And yesterday I felt several levels of distributed agony sitting in the dark, waiting for Roshi to appear with the light. <coughs> and the light came and we could see the agony. <laughs> Bring it out into the light. But, so, but this attitude we have somehow, we are stuck with the body, but we want to go after that wonderful mind that frees us from all of these afflictions. So in the teaching of the Buddha, of course, there is teaching about body. Even the three Buddha bodies, you know, the, the trikaya, sanjin, sanjin in, in Japanese. You probably heard about all of them, the dharmakaya, the Sambhogakaya and the Nirmanakaya. It's very difficult in Japanese because they all sound almost the same. They have different characters. Hoshin for the Dharmakaya, Hoshin for the Sambhogakaya, and Oshin for the Nirmanakaya. I, I can't imagine how, how well you have to pay attention to have somebody speak about it in the Japanese language. It's hard enough in, in, in Western languages to understand it. And the interesting thing is, in, in Austria, where again Roseon taught, Joshu Roshi came and talked about the, the three bodies of the Buddha, and everybody listened to the translator, but they didn't hear it right. But to this day, they call it the Nirvanakaya <laughs> instead of the Nirmanakaya. Interesting. So, Hoshin, Hoshin, and Oshin. So, what is that Dharmakaya? It is that literal body of 
reality, the literal body of reality, all sitting here still. But this reality is understood as devoid of that self-substance. Self-substance, selfhood, no individuality, no personality, no ego entity, no, what would the technical term be, no shvabhava, no shvabhava. It is only shunyata. This is such an important teaching, shunyata emptiness, that we really understand it in the correct Buddhist way, that it's not yet another God substance out of which everything emerges, and we just call it emptiness. It is an attribute of reality that things, uh, they just appear, they are events, they are not things. This thing I'm sitting on is an event that is a platform at this moment. If we look at it, it consists out of at least four pieces of wood on the bottom and one on the top, then there's something glued to it. But for our human convenience, we call it a platform. Let's say I gain 200 pounds and step on here and the whole thing falls apart. We call it broken. It's broken. But what is broken is our idea of it. It is just the event has changed in the way that it, that it appears in front of us. There is no consciousness. There is no selfhood of this platform. The same is true for ourselves. We just like to think about it that way. This is what... Uh, what shunyata really means. And when we chant the Hanya Shingyo and we go Shiki Fu I Ku, Ku Fu I Shiki, form is no other than shunyata. Shunyata is no other than form. That just points to this always changing world of phenomena in which there is no gong, in which there is no Daibosatsu Zendo. But you can run into the walls. You can hear the sound. All of that is the Dharmakaya, pervades all of it. No thingness. But that doesn't mean it's not there. This body pervades all things throughout the cosmos. How, do, how does our dedication go, Iro-san? Buddha nature pervades the universe. That is the body of the Buddha, the Dharmakaya. Case 20 of the gateless barrier. A man of great strength. Now here's something about body. Shogen Osho said, Why is it that the man of great strength does not lift his legs? And he also said, It is not the tongue he speaks with. Mumon's comment. Now listen to the body. We are looking at body. Mumon's comment. It must be said that Shogun shows us all his stomach and intestines. But alas, no one can appreciate him. And even if someone could appreciate him, let him come to me and I'll beat him severely. Why? If you want to find pure gold, you must see it through fire. How many references to not only body, bodily experiences and body parts are in here. Stomach, intestine. Can I hit your mind with the stick? Mumon hits the body. The verse goes like this, lifting his legs. 
this big, this great man, what does he do? He kicks up the scented ocean. Lowering his head, he looks down on the fourth jhana heaven. There is no space vast enough for his body. Now somebody write the last line here. Body. Dharmakaya. Dharmakaya. The second body is the Nirmanakaya. The body that is revealed in the absolute completeness of each and every single phenomenon. And I say phenomenon so I don't say thing because when I say thing then we think it's a thing and the thing has thingness but as we just heard there is no such thing as thingness because all of it is empty of any inherent thingness. Even as the, these physical bodies of ours here are fundamentally insubstantial clouds of little particles swirling around at speeds that are beyond our perception, it is still an utterly and perfect manifestation of the whole. This is the Nirmanakaya in ourselves. The individual manifestation of Dharmakaya transformed into Nirmanakaya. Here's another koan that points to exactly that. The Blue Cliff Record, Hekigan Roku, case number seven. A monk by the name of Echo asked Zen Master Hogan, what is Buddha? Or, yeah, what, what is ultimate truth? What did Hogan reply? You are Echo. That is Nirmanakaya. The last one, Sambhogakaya. Sambhogakaya is reality understood as an infinitely complex web of interdependent relationships among phenomena that are fundamentally empty. So we are empty. We are the manifestation, the body of emptiness. But at the same time, we are unique and a complete expression of the whole. We could be a grain of rice. We are everything, even though we co-arise with everything, dependently. We are all one. That is, as the Buddha said when he was born, alone. But we are interconnected. Nothing can be apart from us. And that is true with every sit and every breath and every step that we take in this place, in this wonderful company we have, in this inconceivable fortune that we have to be here and to have been exposed to these teachings. We can learn how to take instruction if we see it this way, in a completely different light. Pick up your teacup with both hands. Why? What's the point? No, just do it. And you do it often enough. It turns into an expression of the interconnectedness the Buddha body, the Dharmakaya pervading the individual manifestations, coming into a visible expression 
that is beyond any kind of intellectual understanding we could have about it. Just look at the first noble truth. All life is inherently, I don't want to say suffering, uh, unsatisfactory. How many people have read that sentence? So many. How many have experienced it like last night? Not so many. But what is the quality between the understanding of the declaration of the first noble truth and the true throwing ourselves into the fire of it? Throwing yourselves, ourselves into the Buddha's room where there is pain, where there is suffering, where there is death decay. Very different. When we eat, another very complex interaction that we have, that in itself is the conundrum of human existence. Let me explain that after picking up the cup with two hands again. So what do we do when we eat? We make a deal with the devil because we commit something that we have professed not to do. Take life. Yeah, even if you eat nutritional yeast, which might not be very appetizing, you are actually killing something. Every single florid of broccoli we consumed today is life that was taken to sustain our bodily existence. I know you're tired of it. I said it many, many times. If we had ears to hear the harvesting of broccoli, there would be no farms. But we don't even have ears to hear the harvesting of pigs, of cows, of chickens, and other living beings, because it is nicely stashed away in a factory farm that is disinfected not only for uh, not getting people sick, but also for people from knowing what kind of deal they are making when they pick up their nicely packaged, shiny package of whatever meat you might want to have. Ultimately, there is no, not, not much difference who wants to set the bar at the specific level. But then we have to come to a different understanding. What is it? Of course, let's try to be as, as little harm-causing as we can. But let's also keep in mind that the Buddha took a meal as dana that had some meat in it, actually, and mushrooms. And you know what? It killed him. So what is it that we have to become aware of? Whatever we take, what do we do with the energy that we derive from it? A really interesting example for that is Adolf Hitler. He was a vegetarian. So there is no guarantee that whatever you eat, and if you even did it with having as little harm as possibly in mind, that you don't end up committing these harmful acts with the energy that you take from it. So that's, that's really important to know. So from that point of view, 
body is, is the material aspect of mind. But there's really then no difference. Because mind is not just the immaterial aspect of body. Because just we could just say, well, eating is just a bodily function. That's how it works. Watch yourself, how your body reacts when the food comes. Even chanting. <laughs> well, I start drooling. Come on, I have no shame saying that. <laughs> this is how it works. But we can also look at it from the point of view that we could say that we could say our body is the condensation of our past thoughts, our past actions, as I had expressed in talking about trauma and the body remembering, but also our thought, our emotional habits, our imprints and tendencies. Here comes George Orwell. You know what George Orwell said? At the age of 50, every man has the face he deserves. So you here, still under 50, be warned. For the rest of us, <laughs> I'm sorry, it's too, too late, at least according to Mr. Orwell. But even a newborn baby comes in this, into this world with a face. Not only a face, but with a body and with traits, a product of causes and conditions, which precede even the conception, certainly precede socialization, influences of society, of parents. Very, very telling. Ultimately, when we look at the body, we can say it is not only a manifestation of the whole, but also of the functioning of the whole. You eat something that you know you should not be eating. Your body tells you that could be gluten, that could be lactose. You do something to your body that you should not be doing. smoking, using other toxic substances that cause irreparable harm. It does not only often expose what is behind it, how emotions make really, really heavy smokers have that craving for the solution that appeared once, that one is not able to escape. So even though we think it's just that we can't control certain things in the body, we don't realize that is so because the body is the manifestation of the whole in our individual example of conditions. It is receptive to all our actions, karma in action, in our body. A true manifestation of the working of cause and effect. We chant about realization. Realization and actualization. It is too easy to think realization happens in the mind and actualization in the body. Because when you really actualize with your body, you know what it makes it? It makes it real. It makes it real. When we sit down and assume the posture of Zazen, when we bring our hands together and make all of this world become at peace in this oneness of no separation, when we chant with our voice, 
with our breath. That is real. That is the body of the Buddha. We don't chant sutras. We become the sutras. And what does the Hanya Shingyu tell us? Mugen Nibi Zetshin. No eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, no body. And then comes the mind. No seeing, right? Mushiki Shoko Mi Sokuho. No tasting, no smelling, and then no thinking. There is no separation. And this is all three of the Buddha's bodies, the Dharmakaya, the Sambhogakaya, and the Nirmanakaya, right here with us. How do we treat it? That is the question. How do we pay attention to it? My body and not my body. Especially in the state of illness, we like to think it is not my body. I have to get rid of this illness. It is not me. But becoming the illness and making the relationship and embracing what needs to be done and how it has to be related to is the foundation for further development that we could, under all circumstances, call an act of healing, even if the outcome physically might not be a cure. If you ever had the privilege to speak to somebody who has an incurable illness and who surmounts pain, agony, and restrictions of not being free from these ailments of the body, with a soaring manifestation, not, not just of spirit, but of the realization of that in their physicality and life. So we are, the we are the body. We are more than the body. And we are less than the body. Remember what it says in the Lankavatara Sutra. Things are not what they appear to be, nor are they otherwise. That always makes me laugh inside, you know? because I, 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 I think this is something you would pick out of a Buddhist fortune cookie. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it sounds ridiculous, but really it's, it's not that far off because as far back as the 18th century in Kyoto, the temples were baking cookies that had little pieces of sutras, so Buddhist fortunes in it. So that's where really the roots of the fortune cookie might lie, yeah? Omikuji, Omikuji, they call them. So we open it and it says, things are not what they appear to be, nor are they otherwise. So, Let's do it this way, sitting, walking, standing, bowing, chanting as a cosmic activity. See the pain, feel the pain, and the Buddha's body. How do we relate to it in that place? How do we not keep score, but move through and come to that clear sky? Not only of samadhi, but of that mirror wisdom that allows us to relate to all of it in a real living manner. I want to thank Bodin Roshi from 
the Rochester Zen Center, who talked about this, uh, this a lot, and I have read some of his stuff and uh, some of the points in here. I want to thank him for bringing them to my attention and so I could also share them with you. There's only one thing to say, let's live it fully, bodily, in a way that makes it real. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org slash donate.